Well, good morning. If you turn your Bible to John chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 36 this morning. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, for leading us so faithfully each week. Thank you, BP's MVPs, for leading us through a wonderful song written by Fanny Crosby. Let's give them a hand. Kelly and Lauren, Miss Jennifer, uh, Macy Maddox for teaching them about Fanny Crosby and her amazing life and ministry. And that's one of the great songs. Um, And we chose that song for them uh, because we wanted them to know a song that would not only, if they aren't yet Christians, those truths of that song could lead them to Christ. Uh, but it could lead others to Christ as they sing that song. I was converted in a song, and I know the power uh, of the gospel through song. Well, if you would, look with me in John chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 28 and 29 to get at the heart of this passage. So Jesus proclaimed, and that word, he is speaking loudly. This is fervency in what he's saying here. He proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. In other words, you have a superficial knowledge of me. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. So to not know the son is to not know the one who sent him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for giving it to us and for the opportunity to hear it preached in this moment. And we pray, Lord, that in spite of the preacher, this passage would go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you well know, at this point, Elizabeth II died on, on Thursday and One of my favorite anecdotes concerning her um, ironically corresponds to this particular day that we remember uh, so sadly as as 9-11. Two days after 9-11, she did something that had never been done in the history of England. Uh, She had the band of the Coldstream Guards play our national anthem during the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Now, think about the context for which the national anthem was written. (laughs) It was written in 1814 as her country was bombing us. And here on a couple of days after 9-11, she has that played um, in honor of those who who lost so much on 9-11. But speaking of uh, 9-11, all of us who are old enough to remember, some college students weren't even born yet, which is mind-boggling because it seems like just a couple of years ago. Um, All of us remember where we were. Uh, Heather and I were here. We we were here, and I was an intern, and, and it was an unusually cool day for mid-September. In fact, uh, 
the whole eastern side of the United States was low humidity and no clouds. It was a sunny day, kind of like what we're going to have later in the week. It was a cool, sunny day, no humidity, beautiful. But by late morning, everything seemed so utterly dark to all of us. All of us were scared, and all of us were grieving. And that evening was a Tuesday evening. Um, we were going to gather here and go out and do faith evangelism. And Cliff, you probably remember this. Instead of doing faith evangelism, we gathered in this room, and, and we had a, a prayer meeting, as we should have done. But there's so many stories, heroic and tragic, uh, that come from that day. You've heard many of them. And uh, one story, which is both heroic and tragic, uh, centers around a man named Lindsay Hurtness. Uh, Lindsay was a, a top broker with Morgan Stanley Investments. And Morgan Stanley Investments uh, was based right there in the World Trade Center. There were 2,700 employees in the World Trade Center from Morgan Stanley Investments on, on one floor. And he was the top uh, salesman. He was the top broker uh, for Morgan Stanley. And uh, he liked to say that he believed that the World Trade Center was the safest building in the world. And he said, if you don't believe it, look back on the bombing, the terrorist bombing in February of 1993. He said the building withstood that and, and it can withstand anything. Um, but the head of security for Morgan Stanley Investments was a man named Rick Rascorley. He had fought in Vietnam. He was a war hero. Uh, he was brilliant at what he did in security. And uh, he believed that the terrorists were coming back. In fact, he said, next time, they're going to come through the air. And when they come through the air, this building will be very vulnerable. And so Rascorla uh, made up a plan, an evacuation plan. And, and this plan was, it re required all 2,700 of the employees of Morgan Stanley to, to follow him out. And this plan was carried out every three months. They would, they would, they would practice it, an evacuation plan. And boy, the, the employees hated it. Uh, because they were several stories up, and every three months they'd have to climb down those stairs led by Rick Rascorla, and they thought it was nonsense. Well, all of them took part in it, except one, Lindsay. Lindsay uh, Hurtness would not take part, and no one could really enforce it because he was the top broker with Morgan Stanley Investments. What are you going to do, fire him? Well, the morning of 9-11, uh, Rick Rascorla's years of planning uh, proved to be genius. And after that first plane hit the tower, um, he began to implement that evacuation plan. And he began to lead all 2,700 employees out of that building. But not Lindsay Hurtness. Lindsay stayed on the floor and he said, it makes no sense of what you're doing. This is the safest building in the world. So he stayed in his office. And that day, only two died from Morgan Stanley Investments. The first was Lindsay Hurtness himself. Having trusted 
uh, in some kind of false security, a, a man-made building. Uh, he died. Rick Rescorla was the second. After escorting all 2,700 employees out to safety, Rescorla, the hero, went back into the building to try to save Lindsay Herkness to no avail. Of course, we, we recognize the foolishness of, of trusting in a, a man-made building when, when there was a human deliverer there to rescue Lindsay. Thankfully, most people at Morgan Stanley weren't that foolish. But let me offer you, as we come to our text, a kind of foolishness that's a whole lot more pervasive and a whole lot more destructive than the foolishness of Lindsay Hurtness. And it's this. It's trusting, not in man-made buildings, but in man-made religion centered around human works and human merit. Now that's foolish because our God is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, which means his standard is infinite perfection, infinite holiness, and infinite righteousness. And yet this God has made a way. He has provided a savior for us if we would only follow if we would only commit to in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as our substitute and lived the life that we cannot live and then died the death that we deserve, taking the judgment of God on the cross and being raised from the grave for our pardon, for our forgiveness of sins. That is the deliverer that God has provided, and it is utterly foolish to refuse that deliverance. Well, we're in a text where we see a lot of religious people who have that false assurance. They are trusting in their man-made religion. Uh, they are in Jerusalem because it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze. It's the last feast, the last harvest feast of the year. And they are there out of obedience to the law. But their obedience was not because of their gratitude to God, not because of their love for God. It was out of compulsion. It was out of fear that if they did not obey him, he would, he would judge them. And so they were there out of servile fear and self-righteousness. And they were parading their self-righteousness and it manifested itself not only in this rigid obedience to the law, but even more destructive, rigid obedience to their man-made laws. And when you have that kind of self-righteousness, you can see no need for the kind of savior that Jesus is. And that's where they are. And that brings us to our passage, in, starting in verse 25, where Jesus is going to establish, and we just read this, that unbelief in Christ is ignorance of God. Unbelief in Christ is ignorance of the true and living God. Look with me in verse 25. So, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. 
Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So they are assuming that these leaders are allowing Jesus to continue to teach openly in the temple because they really don't know who Jesus is and just maybe um, that's behind their allowing him to do this. Well, uh, these people from Jerusalem were wrong. Uh, all the way back in chapter 5, we saw in verse 18 of chapter 5, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. Um, Jesus is not a lawbreaker. He, he kept the law for us. Uh, he's the only one who's ever kept the law. That's why we need him. Uh, we, we need the righteousness that is his, that is imputed to us, credited to us by grace through faith. But because they had created these man-made laws around the Sabbath law, in their view, he was breaking the law. And on top of that, he was claiming to be equal in essence and power and glory to God the Father. And therefore, he needed to be killed. And then we saw in chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so, the reality is, Jesus remains free to teach in the temple at this point, but it has nothing to do with their uncertainty. Um, the fact is, they can't silence him. And we're going to see in verse 30 why. They can't silence him. And this has been, by the way, the testimony throughout church history. Um, the world knows enough about Jesus the world knows enough about his followers to want to suppress the message. Uh, you see it today in full force in the United States. They know enough about us to want to suppress the message. But here's the good news. They can't. They may win uh, temporary victories here and there, but they cannot ultimately suppress the message. It would be like trying to to lasso a bucking bronco with dental floss. And that's been proven throughout history. Just consider the book of Acts. Uh, many of us here in Lakeview know the theme verse of Acts is you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the gospel is going to go to the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And by the time you get to chapter 8 of Acts, the gospel is only in Jerusalem. So how's God going to get the gospel to the nations? In a way you and I would have never envisioned through persecution. In, in Acts chapter 8, listen to this. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is really the first persecution in church history. You see it in chapter 4, but really this is it. And, and if we had been living in that day, it may have been easy to reason, oh man, the gospel may be done for. Persecution has come, but notice the rest of the verse. The persecution came and they were all scattered 
throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the whole point of Acts is to get the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what does God do to get it there? He uses persecution against Jesus, against his people, and against his gospel. How about Philippians? The Apostle Paul wants to get to Rome. He believes that Rome is such a strategic city And so if he could just get there and preach in the open air to the masses, the gospel will permeate that very strategic city, which was home base for the Roman Empire. Well, that was his desire, but instead he gets arrested. Acts 21, he gets arrested for what they uh, accused him of, of desecrating the temple. So he goes to Rome, but not the way he thought he would. He goes to Rome in chains. And when he gets to Rome in chains, they they chain him 24 hours a day, two years of this, to an imperial soldier. These were the elite soldiers. There was about 9,000 of them. And they protected the Caesar. They protected the Caesar's family. They protected the palace of the Caesar. And so they chained Paul to these these soldiers, these guards. And so for two years, every four hours, they would rotate the soldiers. And what Paul would do for every 24 hours, for two years, he would preach the gospel to these soldiers. It's not the way he envisioned, but it's what he did. And here's what would happen. They would leave and they would take that gospel into the palace. Listen to what Philippians 1 says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And it's remarkable how Philippians ends. At the end of chapter four, here's what it says. Paul writes, all the saints greet you, especially of Caesar's household. Isn't that remarkable? How is the gospel going to get into the palace to Caesar's household? It will come through chains. When it appears the gospel has been suppressed, that actually becomes God's strategy. And and so these people think that Jesus is able to, to teach in the temple because they don't really know who he is. And that was far from the truth. Nothing, remember this, can ultimately stop the gospel. Nothing. And you need to remember that. Every person you meet on the street, every encounter you have, it may be God is preparing that first person for that gospel encounter with you. Well, these people from Jerusalem didn't understand that. But as they pondered Jesus' freedom to teach here, they faced another dilemma created Not by the word of God, but by their faulty tradition. Now, some traditions are good because they're rooted in Scripture. We're not anti-tradition. But those traditions that are anti-Scripture, we need to to, to deny. Um, Well, notice in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
And so they think, because of tradition, that when Messiah would come, no one would know his genealogy, and no one would know his birthplace. And obviously, this is not the case. For we know from the Old Testament that it, it is abundantly clear, Isaiah 9, that he would sit on David's throne. He would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. And so he would be from Judah's lineage, and he would be from David's family line, and he would be born in Bethlehem. And this shows you one of the problems when tradition trumps Scripture. Uh, this tradition had arisen that the Christ was waiting, concealed, and all of a sudden, he would burst upon the scene out of nowhere without any kind of genealogy, kind of like what we see in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. An example of this is seen in the second century book, Dialogue with Trypho. Uh, by Justin Martyr. And, and Trifo argued that Jesus could not be the Messiah because the Messiah is unknown and does not even know himself. And so with this kind of faulty tradition as their belief system, these, these people here in Jerusalem concluded because they knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, um, he could not be the Messiah. And now this is where Jesus is going to respond to that. And, and he gets very spirited. Uh, our English word does not capture uh, the energy behind his words. It's, it's almost kind of like a, a heightened, I envision a, a football coach uh, speaking to his team at halftime when they've had a poor first half, which would have been about two head coaches in the state yesterday. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. Horrifying words. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So this is a rebuke. Uh, it is an indictment on a people who claim to know, claim to have definitive, authoritative knowledge about the true and living God. They knew where Jesus had come from with regard uh, to his, his growing up years, but they had no idea of Jesus's heavenly origins. And their ignorance was due to the fact that tradition was their authority and not their Bibles. And, and we're no different. And, and again, I, I brought this up last week, and you could bring it up every week, actually, um, because one of the real issues in Christ church today are people who come to church faithfully, but they don't read their Bibles faithfully. And, and, and so when you, let me just say this, when you don't read your Bible faithfully, you will have an authority in your life, but it won't be God. And so the authority in your life might be some kind of human tradition. 
It might be your faulty reason. It might be your fallen sensibilities. But you will have an authority in your life. But it will not be God. All right? And, and that's where these people are. Um, they were reading the traditions and they were reading the Bible through the lenses of those traditions if they were really uh, reading the Bible at all. And all they had to do was read Micah 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. But just like today, uh, they had an opinion on Messiah, but because it was not informed by the word of God, the Messiah of the Bible was not the kind of Messiah that they saw they needed. And we need to go back to, uh, to verse 17 from last week to know why. And we saw last week in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Theirs clearly wasn't. Their will was not God's will. Their will was self-exaltation through self-righteousness. And hence, verse 30. One of the most remarkable verses in this chapter. Notice in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But, and I want to tell you something. The next line you should find so very hopeful. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They were trying to lay a hand on him. But they couldn't. Because his hour had not yet come. Now, we have seen a whole lot about this hour. It wasn't a literal hour. He, we know that he was on the cross longer than an hour, but that's what it's referring to. Uh, the hour just speaks of a, of, a, of a time of extreme torment and suffering. Where we know that God's wrath is being poured out on the sun in our place because that's what we deserve. Uh, this hour was not 60 minutes. It was just a figure of speech to speak of a time frame where he would suffer. But it would have limits to it as well. It wasn't open-ended. Once God's wrath was satisfied, the hour would be over. And Jesus would cry, it is finished. It is finished. But he has already spoken about that in chapter 2. My hour has not yet come, he told his mother. Uh, we'll see in chapter 8, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. In chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Chapter 17, the night before the cross, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so God planned for Jesus, the Son of God, to die as the Savior of the world. But the hour of his death was not the time of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths is the time where they celebrated all the ingathering of the crops. That pointed to the consummation when Christ would return in glory. The hour would be six months later at the feast of Passover where the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would be delivered over by God. 
A.W. Pink. And sometimes I give you these quotes because I can't say them more eloquently. If I could say them in my own words, I would. But sometimes it's such of eloquence that I just cannot better it. And so, A.W. Pink, we find here a striking example of the restraining hand of God upon his enemies. Their purpose was to apprehend Christ, yet not a hand was laid upon him. They thirsted for his blood and were determined to kill him, yet by an invisible restraint from above, they were powerless to do so. How blessed then to know that everything is under the immediate control of God. Not a hair of your heads can be touched without his divine permission. So deeply comforting because we know that the God is sovereign is also wise and good. Indeed, Proverbs 21, 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Amen indeed. Again, A.W. Pink, they could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate son bowed to his father's good pleasure. Until then, he was immortal. And this is such an encouraging truth to us all. Why? Because if God is sovereign over the Son of God's death, and he is sovereign over all of these people who hate him, he is also certainly sovereign over each and every one of us. And that kind of rock-solid confidence in God's wise and good sovereignty over life and death has emboldened Christians and and evangelists, preachers, uh, parents, and missionaries for 2,000 years. Uh, Believing that that God uh, holds life and death in in his hands and he always works, works mercy for his children even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances has emboldened many Christians to embrace the danger of missions, and it has sustained them in the moments of their last breaths. Henry Martin, many of you know who Henry Martin is. Uh, He was a missionary to India and Persia. He died, incidentally, uh, next month, October 16th, I believe, uh, 212 or 210 years ago. And earlier that year, it would have been 2000 or, or, or 1812, um, he wrote in his journal these words. And keep in mind, he's 31 years old at this time. Um, I can't imagine being this mature at 31, uh, but some were, and some have been in history. And here's what he wrote at 31. To all appearance, the present year will be more perilous than any I have seen. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. 
That's often been paraphrased. I am immortal till Christ's work for me is done. Henry Merton teaches us that you are immortal until God is done with you. And, and that is so hopeful for us all. And so no one is able to lay a hand on him at this point. The hour hasn't come, even though they desired it. But others, others were embracing him. They're embracing him by faith. Notice in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, how can you ignore the signs? Uh, these people were ignoring all these faulty traditions. Uh, for these people, the signs were enough. These signs pointed to the reality that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And that, incidentally, is the goal of John's gospel. He is writing that we might believe that as well. That we might see what Jesus has done and see who Jesus is and believe that Jesus Christ indeed is the Son of God who came to take away our sins. But this growing belief in Jesus right here uh, is not going unnoticed. That brings us to the last part of this passage we'll move through quickly. So we have seen unbelief in Christ is fundamentally ignorance of God. Lastly, we see unbelief in Christ means to die in your sins. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the religious people, sent officers to arrest him Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. That's referring uh, to his ascension. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Of course, the dispersion had occurred after the exile when Israel had been taken in or Judah had been taken into Babylon and then the Assyrians had depopulated the northern kingdom and, and then the Babylonians allowed, the, or the, the, the Mede-Persians allowed Judah to go back into the homeland. This is referring to those people who were dispersed. <coughs> and it says... What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? And so after the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is going to make two more trips to Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 20, uh, 10, verse 22, we'll see him come back for the Feast of Dedication. We'll talk about that when we get there. But then in six months, he's going to come back to Jerusalem for the Feast of uh, Passover. And there, God is going to deliver him up. And when God delivers him up at the, through the hands of sinful people, he is going to satisfy God's wrath on sin. And then he's going to emerge victorious from the grave, demonstrating that the debt has been paid. And then he's going to ascend to the Father. Um, but note here in verses 34 and 36, he says the same thing. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot 
come. What does this mean? It means there will come a time when they will seek Jesus and it will be too late. That's what he's saying here. It's possible to seek him too late. And that's why we read in Isaiah this morning, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Um, There are warnings throughout the word of God of waiting too long. I met a young man Thursday night. We were out evangelizing, and this young man said to me, he said, I grew up in the church. I grew up committed to Christ. He said, I am no longer in the church. I'm no longer committed to God. He was honest. He said, I may come back to it after college. And what he said uh, shocked me to the core and grieved me because I was thinking about this passage. Jesus is warning here, you may seek me one day and find out it's too late. And, and I think that this shatters uh, that this common view uh, in many churches that, that God is love. And at the end of the day, um, if you're a good person, uh, he, he's going to allow you entry. But that's more foolish than Lindsay Herkness's trusting in a, in a man-made skyscraper. Jesus says here, where I go, you cannot come. This is a warning. It's a warning. And it's a warning our culture needs to hear. Ten months ago, Pew Research Center published this survey where it said that only, I mean, four out of ten, not only, this is high, four out of ten adults in the United States believe that you can actually be an atheist and go to heaven. Now, where did they get that from? Again, what did I say? All of us have an authority. The Bible isn't your authority, then something else will be. And for you to say that you can be an atheist and go to heaven means that your authority really is your sense of sensibility, your sensibilities which are fallen and broken and have no concept of a holy God. It's simply not true because Jesus, not only is he not speaking to atheists here when he's warning them, he's speaking to the most religious people on the planet. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He is speaking to the chief priest. And he is saying, you're going to seek me and you're not going to find me. It's going to be too late. Now, Just to drive this home, that that's exactly what he means. Let's close. If you'll just flip over one page to chapter 8 where he uses the same language. And it's a little more clear here. Listen to verse 21 of chapter 8 as we close out this message. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Then notice verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, that is Messiah, you will die in your sins. And he is saying this to religious people who are more committed outwardly than anyone here. To the most religious people in the world. 
He is saying, if you don't commit yourself to me, Messiah, and repent of your sins, you will die in your sins. And to fail to believe in Jesus is more foolish than Lindsay Herkness, who trusted in a man-made tower. And that is why this passage is so important to us. Um, it is a passage that reminds us believers that we have a Christ who came to take away our sins. And, and it should provoke uh, love. It, it, it should uh, provoke faith and steadfast confidence. Um, we've seen the sovereignty of God in this passage. Um, and, and that's why this passage is here for us. But it's also a passage for you that have not yet trusted in Jesus. And I likely, in a, in a, in a crowd this big, it, it's likely that, that there are some here who have not trusted in God's only provision for sin. Listen, God's standard is perfect and you aren't. You can try to be perfect, but the first 30 seconds of that attempt, you have already broken God's law. There's only one who's perfect and it's the Son of God. He came and he obeyed in your place. And then he went to the cross and took the wrath you deserve. And he was raised from the grave, resurrected from the grave in time and space. And if you will trust in him, and Adam and the musicians come forward, if you will trust in him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. You have at that moment crossed over, get this, from death to life and from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of God's love. And I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to that, that message, that gospel truth. So as we stand and we sing, uh, we'll have pastors here at the end of the aisles. Won't you come? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.